What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Yoga Living Project podcast. This is Austin Richmond. Today's episode is entitled The Four Phases of Yogic History and Why It Matters for Teachers and Students of Yoga. So I want to talk about the four phases of yoga history according to Gregor Mahl. Uh, if you've ever seen his Ashtanga Yoga book, that's him. Uh, he's an Australian yoga teacher that uh, Amber and I both love dearly, and he's pretty brilliant. And this is a not-so-familiar concept. Um, it's in the Ashtanga book, and um, strangely, I've had this book for years and read it several times through, especially the philosophy part, but I've never caught this until recently. Um and what's interesting about this is that um, for a long time I've been aware of the different yugas of yoga, the different epochs of uh, human and cosmic evolution in yoga, and also the um, the ashramas, the different um, eras of human life and how that relates to different practices. And um, what's interesting about this particular um, construct that Male talks about um, is that He's noting on humankind's psycho-spiritual evolution. And um, I just think it's really interesting because we can't forget the fact that uh, yoga is first and foremost a science of the mind. Uh, A lot of times people want to argue that it's just about poses or that it's a religion. And I think most sincere yoga practitioners know that it's not. Um, So... Without further ado, let's get into the four phases. The first one is uh, is the naturalism phase. So, um, naturalism was uh, a time a long time ago when um, the knowledge of the great teachers was only transmitted verbally and experientially. Um, this is the time of the Vedas. Um, these were the sages, the rishis, the masters, and and even the yoga teachers at that time known as Narodas. Um, they were called this because this was the overarching state of mind, I inferred. Um, and so the, the mind at this time of naturalism is known as Naroda Chitta. So Chitta meaning mind, and Naroda meaning suspended. So if you um, remember back from... Uh, Suzanne's blog post last month, Sutra 1.2, Yoga's Chitta Vritti Narodaha. Um, you're going to remember that um, this is one of the main overarching, like high goals of yoga is to get to a place where the mind is actually in a state of suspension, of perfect clarity. Um, a lot of these teachers during this time were just continually in this unified state. Um, today's Terminology, we would call the samadhi or um, bringing the kundalini energy to the seventh chakra. You can name it a bunch of different ways. Um, but however you call it, however you dice it, it's definitely a very esoteric and difficult um, state to even comprehend, let alone achieve. Uh, one of my favorite yoga teachers, Krishna Das, talks about, um, I've heard him remarking recently that he thinks that there's probably five living masters on planet Earth alive right now um, that are even in that realm of true Naroda Chitti or Chitta. Um, so the 
one of the fundamental characteristics of this time frame and these this type of um, state of mind is that truth or capital T truth um, we're able to just uh, these teachers were able to extrapolate capital T truth um, strictly just by what was made evidence evident to them through them bearing witness to them um, so it's so important to understand going through these four phases of um, yogic history in terms of the mind and human mind that Molly makes a big distinction that is common in a lot of different schools of yoga between the concept of evolution and involution. So evolution, um, though we kind of have this um, modern take on evolution that whenever we're adapting, we're surviving. And so for the survival of the fittest, well, we must be the best. Um, but yoga takes the term a little bit more literally, that evolution is this process of operation that is downward and outward. And specifically, this is referring to the mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical state of our development. And one of the purposes of yoga is to actually reverse that process and um, go through a process called involution. And that is what happens when one apparently is in the uh, Naroda Chitti. They are in a state that is involuting that energy. That psychic energy is moving inward and upward. So the second phase of the yoga history is known as mysticism. Now, as society evolves, um, naturalism gives way to this as, as certain things become a little bit more socially focused in terms of societies being developed and the needs of people changing. Um, the needs of what they need from their yoga also changes. So in the mysticism era, um, the Upanishads are the primary text. The early Upanishads come out um, at this point. The Vedas seem somewhat esoteric. And the Upanishads, um, though they are mystical in their own sense, do start to step forward a little bit more into explanation, whereas the Vedas are kind of... Um, they, they describe how to, to do certain rituals, and it's, it's just kind of very removed from people's lives. So the Upanishads is a step closer to where people are actually at. Um, this era is marked by the state of mind known as Ekagra Chitta, or single-pointed mind. Um, so this is interesting because um, Mali states that the people who are in, of this certain mind frame they're teachers of the Narodahas. So they need a teacher to decipher the truth, the big, the capital T truth for them. Um, so it's interesting, especially if, um, you know, you start to look at the next phases, how this starts to evolve, that each, each phase needs a teacher from the phase before it to get to the next step and then to the next step until you're finally back to that state of involution. Um, so, um, I think it's also worth stating that the, just the kind of idea behind the Upanishads, even the meaning is pretty interesting. It's intriguing. It means to sit near and, um, you know, if you can think back to this time as society is starting to develop, um, people are not so prone to just go out into the forest. But these forest universities do start to pop up and 
it was not completely, um, I guess, a surprise if a student wanted to be a spiritual aspirant. It, it was common that they would have to leave their home life and um, go out into this forest, which was a scary place. A lot of people didn't come back from the forest. And even if you did achieve your goal and find a teacher or one of these forest universities, sometimes other things awaited you that were not as uh, kind. Um, but say you did find one of these universities, you found one of these teachers, well, the initiation process could take years. Then once you um, finally are accepted as one of the students, when you pass the initiation process, the undertaking to transmit that knowledge from a, a suspended mind teacher, a great open, clear-minded teacher, a teacher of samadhi, to teaching a single-pointed student um, would take a lifetime. So already we're within the second phase of yoga history here. The, the division in mindset is already so vast that it takes an entire lifetime to catch up to. Um, third phase. The third phase of yoga history, according to Gregor Mall, is the philosophy phase. So this is interesting because this is when... Um, what we now know as the classical era of yoga starts to really erupt. Um, certain things like the Bhagavad Gita, um, Buddhism, Sankhya philosophy, and even what most people, especially yoga teachers, are very familiar with, the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, all come out of this era. Now, um, this era is uh, demarcated by the type of mindset that Mal calls vikshipta chitta. Vikshipta means distraction or distracted mind. So, you know, you can start to imagine agriculture starts to create this um, greater sense of assimilation through the empiricism of the time. This starts to come into full swing, and it's even more and more difficult for people to practice spirituality in a uh, traditional sense in India. And so, or even in the, the whole area. Um, and so people start to get swept up with all um, the kind of classical, modern, um, I guess we would call them pre-modern um, aspects of life. So, um, and of course, it follows that these people suffering this distracted mind would need to find a teacher who was of single-pointed mind to be able to decipher for them what the teachers of the suspended mind were actually teaching. So now you've got a full two-step process. You're two degrees away from um, what you might call a goal of yoga or a goal of achieving clarity of mind through spirituality. And um, as I've already stated, that step one to step two is already a vast gap. Well, single-pointed mind to a distracted man is an even bigger gap. So the challenge becomes even greater for the layperson in society at this time. Now the fourth and final phase, the one that Malay says that we are living in now, is the phase of technology. And this is highlighted by um, Tantra. So every Tantra text... Um, especially the famous ones that we know of, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the Garanda Samhita, the Shiva Samhita, 
all these current methodologies that we use of pranayama and um, asana that turned into what it turned into, the different styles of yoga even in the 20th century, you could definitely argue that Ashtanga Yoga is a systematic style of yoga, which is essentially a tantra, a style of tantra. Um, so unlike the um, kind of popular misconception that tantra has to do with sexual practices or sex magic, that's, yes, that did happen, but in a very small extent. Um, and that's definitely conflating the issue to even really talk about it. Um, by and large, especially for the way yoga has been practiced over the last hundred years and is most popularly practiced now. So, um, yeah, this era of yoga history is suffering from what is called mudha chitta, or the infatuated mind. So this infatuation is marked with obsession of wealth, vanity, power, control, all that which is within the physical realm. Whereas the era before then, they were distracted, but they were distracted more by the promise and the imagination of what was to come. It was as if people in this era could sense that they were on the verge of some great, huge breakthrough. And in fact, if that was the sense, they were absolutely right because the technological age, um, in terms of the yoga uh, history that Gregor Mahl uh, plots out here, we're in for a big surprise when we come up with not just everything that happened in post-classical yoga era, but um, even in modern day life, what we call, you know, the look at the last hundred years and how things have changed. And so you can see that um, yoga has to change once again for people to be able to deal with their infatuated mind. So we can look back at the yoga history and look all the way back to the Vedas and we can read them, um, but that technology is not meant for us. We can look back at the Upanishads and we can start to understand them. They can start to have some meaning to us and, and be wonderful, but Mali says that what we need to do is find a teacher in this era that can essentially decipher one layer at a time. So we need, we need to find a teacher essentially who has decoded uh, what a naturalistic teacher has taught. And that teacher, by very definition, must be a mystic from phase two. So phase two teacher must decode the phase one teaching for phase three to understand it and so on. Phase four mind needs a phase three teacher to be able to decipher what a phase two teaching is. Okay, I know that's confusing. But all in all, this all points to the idea that um, whatever practice you're doing, whether it's hot yoga or ashtanga yoga or meditation or pranayama or hatha yoga or gentle yoga or ayengar yoga, um, keeping in mind the fact that what we're doing ultimately is a practice to shape our minds in a certain way. And it was a great poet, John O'Donohue, who said that the greatest thing that we can do in our life is to shape a beautiful mind. And David White uh, kind of connects this idea, how to shape a beautiful mind, with words from uh, Roque, who says, one 
you must ask the beautiful question. And this is how we shape the beautiful mind. So wherever you're at right now, whatever technology you're doing, um, the goal is not to sub subdue yourself or sedate yourself with your yoga practice into submission or sleep or zombification to achieve peace, but let the curiosity build in a way that it leads you down a road that builds a burning passion for you to discover and explore with great curiosity what lies under the mind that we have become familiar with. The way in which we perceive reality is definitely one that is limited and stifled. I'm sure you could agree without too much argument. And I hope that this little bit of time listening to this give you a little bit of insight into the ways in which, uh, at least on a philosophical level, that we are kind of blinded to a much bigger picture. And when we strive to achieve a high goal in yoga, that we can't forget that it is a stepwise process. And we have to be patient, and we have to do the work, and we have to do the practice, letting go of the result ultimately, so that we can go through whatever pathways and processes and purposes we need to, to ultimately allow the yoga to do the work, which is unfolding something that is already within us, as yoga is a subtractive science of the mind. As always, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your time. If you have anything to contribute to Yoga Living Project, via blogwise or anything else or even comments on this feel free to email me at austin at cambioyoga.com i'd really appreciate any thoughts you may have around this and as you we move into the spring and the return of the light um, may your practice be steady may be consistent and may be filled with love thanks for listening y'all namaste